0: WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote.
1: And I'm Matt Lasowitz. And this week we're joined by the co creator and editor of Razor Blades, horror anthology magazine, and writer of the Oni Press graphic novel Cheater Codes, uh, Steve Fox. Welcome aboard, Steve. Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, So we usually start by asking our guests what comics they remember reading when they first got into the medium. But given the nature of this week's discussion, uh, I'm going to flip that a little bit. Uh, What was your first experience with horror media that you remember, whether it's movies, books, comics, you know, whatever?
2: Oh, man, I was actually a huge scaredy cat as a kid. Um, So horror was always present, but I wanted it... At a safe distance. Sure. <laughs> um, so some of my earliest memories are like the the blockbuster video wall of horror VHSs, and seeing all these really evocative '80s and early '90s covers, and being too afraid to pick up any of them. Uh, I also had this recurring fear. I, I didn't see Texas Chainsaw Massacre until I was in my well into my 20s, mm-hmm. but I was convinced I would turn a corner and see Leatherface, even though he is by far the loudest uh, killer in in any. <laughs> slasher adjacent movie. But I was just terrified that I would turn a corner and see him. So a lot of my earliest memories with horror are kind of that temptation, but nervousness. Mm -hmm. And really what put me over the edge was Clive Barker and specifically the Books of Blood, the first three. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know what really got me to finally check it out. I think finding out he was gay and having that intersection around the time that I was a preteen and and coming out myself. Mm -hmm. So I checked out Books of Blood and I really fell in love. And that happened to line up with the only time I've ever gone to San Diego Comic-Con in 2004. Mm. And he was signing there. He had um, this odd sort of like illustrated children's book thing he was doing at the time. And I remember I, I got my dad to take me to a local borders when that still existed and pick up a second copy of Books of Blood so I could get one signed and meet him and everything. And that really c- kicked it off. After that, I, I just wanted to read and watch
1: and hear and see everything horror related. Is that Thief of Always or is that his other sort of YAE book? Thief
2: of Always is YA-ish. He was promoting this, this really it was like a picture book where he had drawn sort of imaginary animals. I can't recall. The name now but i actually i still have the stuffed animal of it home because uh, he's a quite prolific artist too which not everyone uh, knows and he's illustrated a lot of his own book covers and provided spot illustrations to projects like a mirror mirror um, which is another horror anthology so he was promoting the oddest thing but if, you know of course i just grabbed the popular book that i loved and got him to sign that <laughs>
0: Uh, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're primarily primarily here to talk about Razorblades, the uh, quarterly horror anthology magazine that you're curating, uh, editing with uh, James Tynan IV. Uh, what, was, what was the origin of this project? Uh, you know, I've been fascinated by a lot of the sort of outside-the-box uh, stuff that's, you know, emerged, uh, you know, post-diamond uh, shutdown, uh, pandemic pause, whatever you want to call it. And I know, you know, this was kind of... St- it started The the, it was conceived kind of during that period.
2: Yeah. I mean, you really nailed it. Um, So I, I've known James for several years now just from running in similar like New York circles and having so many mutual friends. And last year when he and Martin Simmons really got department of truth up and running, Mm -hmm. he needed an editor And, and Steve Orlando recommended me and we hit it off really well in that capacity. Um, So i had been working with James for a while in Department of Truth when COVID forced the Western comics industry to kind of hit pause. And we were actually positioned fine because we hadn't announced Department of Truth yet and we were able to work ahead. So all things considered, it worked out okay for for us. Um, And James and I, we were texting about Department of Truth and he went on this crazy binge of ordering old comics from eBay. And one of the things he picked up was a full set of taboo, which was Steve Bissett's horror anthology from the very late eighties or early nineties. And most people know of it because it's where Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell started from hell. Mm-hmm. They serialized a few chapters there before it branched off into its own book. And, and he picked those up and he texted me a photo of them. And I was fussing with my bookshelf at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed the copies I had and texted him a photo back. And James was like, I just fucking wish we could do this, but now with like younger creators and newer creators. And we started kind of like fan casting it back and forth.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: after a few minutes we're like, are, are we doing this? <laughs> like, have we actually decided to, to make this book? Um, and a lot of it at the time was thinking like, okay, a lot of our most talented friends and peers are not working. They got pencils down, orders. Um, they had gigs that they had lined up for months, suddenly disappear. And thinking like, you know, this is the time to strike. And of course it, it helps massively that James is at such a, um, an upward trajectory mm-hmm. right now between something's killing the children and Batman mm-hmm. um, and wind and, and everything else he's doing. So it was just kind of this perfect moment to try something this crazy. And we talked about doing like a Kickstarter or, well, one thing we never talked about was going through a traditional publishing house. We knew from the start, we wanted to do it ourselves. We wanted to take that crazy plunge um, because he had never self-published anything. And I had been involved in like Kickstarter anthologies and things like that, but I had never done a project start to finish that way.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then of course, by the time we got the roster lined up, diamond started chipping again and suddenly we were all very busy uh and we even ended up moving up and not a lot of people know this but we moved up the launch of department of truth because Mm -hmm. um, image comics had a chance to launch us in the the fifth week of september and Mm -hmm. put a big focus on us so we actually like had to put the pedal to the metal uh, no pun intended for james others other work uh, on department of truth Mm -hmm. so suddenly this project that we had thought of as this kind of like downtime thing became a really big undertaking but every time we approached someone they were so excited at the idea um, and we approached people we knew obviously you know several of james's collaborator- collaborators, collaborators are in the first issue but also people we had never spoken to people we had no contacts with that we just hit up out of the blue and everyone really just loved the spirit of the thing mm-hmm. um, and so now we're in a, a cool spot where we had done the, the second issue at the end of october and we did the pre-orders for like a full year subscription and everything. And now we finally have a little bit of breathing room. Issues one and two were like, go, go, go. Issues three through five, we were able to knock on wood, plan out a little more and have some more space. Um, but it's, it's been a very fun project. And uh, that's a long way to answer your how did this get started question. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, COVID shut down, loving horror, both having taboo copies at hand. <laughs>
0: Steve Bissett, et cetera. Yep. Uh, you know, you and James mentioned fan casting. Uh, did you effectively, you know, were you like 10 for 10 out of the park? Just, you know, looking at the creators that contributed the first two issues, you know, Rom V, uh, Zach Thompson and Lottie Nadler, uh, Marguerite Bennett, Nick Robles, Danny Lore. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of known quantities in these, in these first two books.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, of course, we looked at the people we already knew, especially mm-hmm. for that first issue, because we're like, we got to hit up, hit up people fast. Um, we are paying all of our contributors, but we obviously don't have the, the deep pockets of like an, a full publishing house. Mm-hmm. But we also really wanted to do something that Taboo did really well, which was take people from different areas of comics and publishing and throw them in the same pot. Mm-hmm. Um, because it would have been easy as heck for james and i to fill this book with mainstream monthly comic people like it it would not have been a challenge whatsoever but what was interesting to us was seeing okay what if we pull people from like horror illustration circles on twitter what if we pull people who've been doing like weird indie horror comics like josh simmons what if we try to get a, a manga creator in here in some way so that was really the the fun fan casting element of it to see like how wild we could get with putting people together and, and see how that worked out. And so far we've been really, really lucky to have people say yes to that. Um, we have some names coming up for issue three and four that I don't wanna spoil, but you know, it's no one that James and I have any connections to. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily people that you think about when you think about horror, but they're very exciting names in their area of publishing and we want to put them in our area of publishing and put them in the same spot. And it's it's been cool even to see the ripple effects of that already. Um, So one of the illustrators we worked with was Trevor Henderson, who created a character called Siren Head, who's quite popular online. And he does this work that's kind of like creepypasta feeling. Uh, And he's got this great following online, but he hadn't done anything in Western comics. And we got him to do our first issue cover and we got him to do a serial going forward or a recurring feature going forward. And since then we got him for a cover for department of truth and Zach uh, Thompson got him for a cover for his new book. Um, Aftershock. The uh, the name is escaping. Breathe the, the body book with Andy McDonald. Yeah. I breathe the body. Um, so he got Trevor on a book for that. So it's been cool to see these names kind of now start to filter. We're not taking credit for that, obviously, but it's a way to, to kind of cross pollinate mm-hmm. these different cool horror sections of, of the Internet and of literature and art right now.
0: So the first the first two issues are, are 75 pages each. Uh, you know, when you're working on that first issue, you know, was that was that the target, you know, how how. How thick a boy were you initially uh, expecting?
2: (laughs) No, we we definitely, um, I will say a a behind the scenes trend with James is James thinks big. Like Mm -hmm. every time I I get a text once a week of, so I have a crazy idea. And, and then we make those crazy ideas happen. And uh, when we first thought of it, it ballooned from like 40 to 64 pages in the earliest planning stages. Mm-hmm. And we really aimed for 64, but we just kept hitting people up and people were saying yes. And people were saying, oh, I have a great idea, but I, I would need two more pages than that. Um, so we landed at, at 72 interior pages. It's like a, a comfortable mm-hmm. spot that we could afford to print, <laughs> but still be like a, a hefty boy, as you say. Um, and it felt like for for a quarterly anthology, you really want to give people a good chunk each time. You know, I'm sure people would appreciate 30 pages, but 72 pages feels hefty. Like that's mm. maybe two reading sessions or like you kind of look at it throughout the week. And I think for something that's only going to come out every three months in a field that's so full of things coming out every three, every, every week, Mm -hmm. um, having it be that size kind of makes it feel a little more special.
0: No, no, definitely. You know, something, something you can sit with.
2: And it's Um, entirely possible that future issues are going to be a little bigger (laughs) because we just keep saying yes to cool people. Uh, and then realizing, like, oh, shit, we got to make this fit into something we can print. So this is, I'm not committing to it, but there's a chance some issues might be 80 pages.
0: It, it's, a, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> um, yeah, tell
2: that to the, the printer. <laughs> we also, I got to say, you know, part of self-publishing is learning as you go. Sure. And... I've worked in a lot of different areas of publishing. I, I worked for five years at random house uh, mm-hmm. as a children's editor. I worked at pace magazine covering comics and I've been writing since 2014. Uh, but books have to be printed in signatures of eight or 16 pages. Yep. And we just didn't even remember that, but thankfully landed on uh, 72. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when we started laying out, we're like, Oh my God, what if this is one page over? <laughs> so thankfully we uh we caught that in time (laughs) goodbye introduction (laughs) yeah that's what would have been the first to go
0: (laughs) i was gonna say save that one pin up for next issue (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um you know, you mentioned not, you know, not really wanting to go through a, tr- a traditional publishing house, se- self-publishing, you know, when you guys were getting to that sort of nitty gritty back end type stuff, you know, were you, t- were you thinking like Kickstarter? Were you thinking, you know, like what kind of options were you bouncing around?
2: You know, we've thought about Kickstarter for an eventual collection. We haven't mm-hmm. decided what we're going to do for a collection yet. We're keeping all of our options on the table, um, as a lot of politicians have liked to say mm-hmm this past week. Um, but we never really thought about Kickstarter because we didn't want to ask permission to do the book. Um, mm-hmm. And that's no slight at all against Kickstarters. Like I said, I've been in three or four, uh, I've supported so many and Kickstarters helped bring so many cool projects to fruition. But especially because we wanted to strike fast. And we mm-hmm. were launching this at a time when a lot of people were losing their jobs out of work. Mm-hmm. It just felt like a the wrong way to go for this specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also why we left the digital version, pay what you want. So that's going to be true for the whole first year. Mm -hmm. You can go online and people ask all the time, like how to get a digital copy or how much it's whatever you want to pay. Like you go on there right now and get it for $0.00 if you want, if you do more that helps support us making this book, but we wanted to make sure that it was accessible to people and that Mm -hmm. it reached a wider audience. And we just didn't want to go through the whole process of, running a Kickstarter, waiting for it, and getting permission to do something. We just wanted to Mm -hmm. surprise everyone with it. Because if you remember, for the first issue, we did not announce anything until it was out. The Mm -hmm. moment it was out, the moment it was announced, you could go get the digital copy right away. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to Beyonce it, as we were fond of saying. (laughs)
0: I was I was thinking of the uh like the Panel Syndicate Brian K one Mark you know Marcos Martin model but I like the Beyonce uh one even better.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> panel Syndicate came up a lot too but I liked to call it the Beyonce model. <laughs> ah. <laughs>
0: um what were some of the the major challenges uh you faced uh, putting together, you know, the the first issue?
2: You know, we got lucky on a lot of things. Like I said a, a big challenge was just landing on the right page count by accident. Um, We also, and if you follow James's newsletter, he's been pretty honest about the trials and tribulations. We really underestimated shipping costs. Um, So we charged people shipping, but we didn't charge people enough shipping, (laughs) Mm. Um, especially with all the issues the USPS has been having this year. Um, So shipping to some places is quite expensive and we certainly took a hit, uh, especially in international shipping. And those are some of the only negative comments we've gotten. It's like, is shipping really that? Yeah, it's really that much. (laughs) Like if you try to ship some ship something from the continental United States to Australia right now, you're going to pay like three times as much for the shipping as you are for the product. Um, So it's really came down to those sort of logistical things. And then there are all sorts of things like making sure everyone has the same file size, making sure everything's the right um, image quality. So that's, all my job. James is handling a lot more of the distribution side, which is great because I, I don't have the brain for all of that, um, but I do have the brain for all the editorial work and all the production work. And our designer is Dylan Todd, so he designed um, the actual logo and the design of the book itself. But then my boyfriend uh, is the actual production person. So uh, I get to stand over his shoulder and watch him put together the InDesign file and everything. So I'm very lucky, you know, I'm dating someone who knows how to do all of that. Um, But knock on wood, James and I have had a pretty smooth go of things. The second issue is actually more challenging in some ways, because we didn't know how much of the hype was, oh, this is a limited thing. Oh, this is a new thing. Um, So we had to find up a way to drum up interest again. And also the second issue was kind of more of a time crunch in a lot of ways, because the first one, no one knew it existed. If files Mm -hmm. were late, we could just push back a week and no one knew. But the second one we announced a release date in advance. So Mm -hmm. you'll see some stories in issue three that you might've seen an issue too if the creators were a little faster uh, and I won't tell you which ones because it's you know it's hardly their fault it was it was a, a real time crunch but mm-hmm. we made it work and it's the same length as the first issue and we've had a great response
0: what was the first moment where you know maybe you, you got a story in or you saw page proofs for the first time you know that moment where where you were like holy shit this is real
2: oh man i'm trying to think back to the first story that came in, (laughs) I have a copy of the PDF up on my my screen right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting those first finished pages in did feel very good, Um, and getting the single page illustrations in were really cool because the single page illustrators were horror illustrators that James and I didn't know at all. They were just people we thought were cool online so getting them in even though they're not the names that comic folk might be that familiar with Mm -hmm. that was when it really started to feel like okay we're doing something that we set out to do and also some of the yeses we started getting because even before the first issue was announced we started hitting up our like dream list contributors Mm -hmm. and some of those names still aren't public but i got a sketch last night from an artist who i didn't think would say yes in a million years and I'm really excited to have her in the book um so those were the moments when it started to really feel like oh this is a real thing and then certainly holding the first print proof but it was a funny experience for me um I've been an all digital comic reader since about 2016 Mm
1: -hmm. so
2: even when I get print copies of my own book I'm just kind of like oh okay neat (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and when I got my first copy of Cheater Code, uh, which is one of the first things I wrote and took a while to actually come out, it was still just kind of like, oh, neat. (laughs) To me, getting the finished PDF is what feels like the milestone. (laughs) The print book is, uh, you know, it's like a cool cherry on top, but uh, I don't like cherries that much.
1: (laughs) Chocolate Uh sauce all day. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I, you know, I'm just a, a digital guy. I got my iPad mini and, and that works for me.
0: <laughs> less need for uh, less need for storage. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. Especially in the city. It's just not, I sold off like nine long boxes of comics last year and it was very freeing. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: what's, what's something you learned about horror? Uh, you know, obviously you have the background in it, but you know, still in the process of, of, of making, you know, these two working on a third, to date, uh, you know, from the various people who've contributed. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, I feel like the, the interview that uh, James did with Scott Snyder, uh, you know, I almost feel like, you know, it's like a print version of like a master class and I can kind of picture you guys just like sitting there taking notes, for example.
2: Yeah, well that's funny too, because uh, obviously James is very famously a student of Scott's, uh, but Scott was one of my professors when I was at NYU. He taught for like three semesters there and I knew him right when um, American Vampire got picked up by DC. Oh, wow. um, so it is funny to see Scott in that capacity and that's something James and I share. Um, and that just distracted me from the class, oh, something I learned uh, <laughs> while doing the book. Um, I think something I already knew but something that really got reinforced was that horror is very subjective. What's scary or disturbing to one person is not scary or disturbing to another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another place where the length really comes into play. Because when you put 12 or 13 features together, there's something for everyone. And one thing that was very satisfying to me, uh, so I, I run the Twitter and Instagram for the book. Mm-hmm. and within about a week of the first issue coming out i got at least one tweet saying every single thing was someone's favorite from single page illustration to the scott feature to the pro story to the comics mm. so that to me was a very satisfying moment to say okay you know even the things that aren't necessarily on my wavelength or on james's wavelength it's on someone's wavelength um, and issue two, I think, drives that home even more because Teeny Howard, and um, Zach and Jen Hickman, mm-hmm. they took more speculative turns. The, the main ethos of Razorblades is to have one foot in the real world. Mm-hmm. But they both kind of took a more speculative spin on things. And that has really resonated with some readers, um, even if it's like slightly outside of the, the main vision for the book. Um, So I think that's the thing that has been really reinforced to me is just seeing that different horror works for different people. Mm -hmm. And that if you tell a bunch of comic creators horror, uh, body horror really holds a a sway over a lot of people um, to the point where we are steering some people away from that um, because we we could have easily filled hundreds of pages with like gross body stuff, (laughs) Uh, but it speaks to what works not to get like too philosophical, but it speaks to what works in horror on the page. I think it's quite difficult to have a scary horror comic. I think it's it's attainable to have a disturbing horror comic, an unsettling mm-hmm. horror comic. So I think we do gravitate towards things with this strong visual component that doesn't rely on movement, that doesn't rely on sound. Mm-hmm. So the body horror is a particular nexus of that it's not impossible of course and i think some of the stories we have are quite disturbing without any sort of physical horror mm-hmm. um but i think seeing how quickly people gravitate toward body horror and i also wonder uh, i'm always thinking in terms of um generational shifts and so i we have people that grew up with some barker we have people who grew up even with like hostile and saw
1: mm-hmm. um
2: who are now telling their own stories and so that, that to me as like a a student of horror, not to get too um, pretentious, <laughs> is is interesting to see.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say, you mentioned the, uh, the 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 Zach Thompson, Jen Hickman piece. Uh, that was de- that was definitely one of the ones that disturbed me.
2: <laughs> yeah, that one was was interesting because when it first came in. Um, so different creators, we have different editorial relationships with some mm-hmm. some of them. I'm seeing, you know. Uh, pitch to script to art to everything mm-hmm. and then some of them like you know Zach and I are buddies and it's kind of like you know we trust you show us what you're going to do mm-hmm. uh, and that one came in as, as a total surprise to me and at first I was like oh, okay you know that's that's different it's not necessarily what I expected them to do um, but it once it sinks in it's really quite a disturbing story it, it doesn't have that one foot in the real world but once you allow yourself to to, to be in that short, um, it, it really kind of fucks you up, the ending, I think.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, definitely a little bit. Uh, and then uh, in the meantime, you know, you've, you're, you're writing stories in this as, as well. Uh, you've got a story that was in the first issue about a mel- medical examiner who finds something strange in a body to be as, you know, non-spoilery as possible. Um, you know, is it is this your... Had you
2: written horror before this? You know, it, it's... Razorblades has been such a blessing to me because for a long time I've told every editor and, and everyone I talk to that horror is a passion of mine, but a lot of the opportunities that come my way are not very horror centric. So uh, I have a, a deep backlist of children's titles, over 50 children's license books mm-hmm. and, and uh, beginning readers and all these things and children's comics and middle grade comics. Um, so I have not had a lot of opportunities to actually show that horror side. So Razorblades, Was a a great like launch pad to finally attach that genre to my name. Uh, And I have a a horror thriller coming out from Aftershock that hasn't been announced yet. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a number of children's books that are kind of in the goosebumps vein. Um, So I've worked with horror before, but this was a chance to like really indulge myself. And the shorts for the first two really came out collaboratively. Um, So I worked with Michael. D. I I unfortunately can't pronounce his name, but James is collaborator on wind and the woods for the Mm -hmm. first issue. And I worked with Michael Ramstead for the second issue. Um, Michael D., of course, came about through James. Michael Ramstead, I had just liked his Instagram art. He does a series called Fall Forever, which is very evocative of like Halloween nostalgia. And I reached out to him out of the blue and I said, hey, would you like to work together on this? So both of those shorts were really built from the ground up with the artist in mind. Um, Michael D wanted to do something gross and kind of otherworldly. Michael Ramstead wanted to just flex his sequential muscles a bit more than he usually gets a chance to. And then in the next issue, I will have a short with my friend Ethan Young, who has been working on Firefly and some other books for Boom. Um, And that one, came about completely from an Ethan idea um, where we were going in one direction and then he wanted to just indulge this sort of like pulpy, grindhouse feel. Um, For me, it's been fun to switch gears each time, but I'm actually going to be kicking off a serial feature in the next issue that will continue in four and five to tell a bit of a longer story as well.
1: I have to say the opening bit of your Story struck a chord for me because I don't know what horror story I read too young, but being buried alive was an irrational fear I had as a kid. I got, you know, real Wednesday Adams and started researching, you know, all the ways you could let somebody know you were still alive if you were buried. Um, fortunately, I've, I've gotten a bit over that, and, you know, things like Stephen King's darkly comedic autopsy room four uh, has kind of helped get past some of that um which is a long way to, to ask was that ever anything that you know you kind of were creeped out by uh, or have you ever used horror to write through a fear or for catharsis
2: absolutely i mean it's it's funny that you say that because uh being buried alive is my greatest fear I'm very claustrophobic Uh, I can't my my boyfriend's a cosplayer and I can't even model some of his looks for him to work on because I like can't be bound in Um, and my fear of that starts in the genuinely stupidest place ever Um, the cartoon Rocco's Modern Life Oh, there's there's an episode where Heifer uh, falls asleep with a cereal box on his head and he wakes up and thinks he's been buried alive And that just like got drilled into me as a child. Uh, And that has been one of my biggest fears my whole life. And just like you, you know, I looked up like all the ways to prevent it. When I was a kid, I used to tell my parents like, do not bury me if I die. I want to be cremated or fed to cats at the zoo. Um, So (laughs) that story was a chance to really exercise some of those fears. Not that they're gone. That's still absolutely my biggest fear. Um, But I think that, You know, as so many horror creators will tell you, tapping your own fears is one of the quickest ways to resonating with an audience because what's authentic to you is going to be authentic to someone else. Uh, I'm not in any way afraid of dogs, so I could never write a Cujo-style story. Uh, You know, the angriest looking dog in the world, I would still try to pet. So... (laughs) being able to tap into that. And then my story for the second issue is about sort of the anxiety of mask wearing, not in the sense that uh, a political sense, I wear my mask every time I go outside, but Mm -hmm. I find it very eerie that the way that we are raised to read people uh, suddenly has been cut in half. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't get half of someone's facial expression anymore and it can provide these kind of unusual uncanny moments where you just don't really know what the other person is is feeling or shifting into and especially as like a marginalized person as a queer person sometimes not being able to get a read on someone else uh, can be frightening and then for the serial i'm kicking off i don't want to spoil it too much but the the other thing i am i'm most afraid of in the world is centipedes uh, I've been a vegan for 18 years. I would never kill a bug, even a centipede, uh, but just saying the name freaks me out uh, and I'm using that to my benefit and to my detriment in the cereal because I'm, I'm not going to want to look at any of the art that comes in, but I'm very excited about it regardless.
0: Uh, I'm good with regular centipedes. It's the human ones that bother me. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. Uh,
1: so, as long as it's not rats. <laughs>
0: oh. um, so who edits the editor when it comes to your stories you know who's 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 the trusted uh you know person who gives those the once over
2: rorschach no <laughs> uh it's 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 james um and it's it's been great um it, it could it's a dynamic that could go funny so fast because we work together on Department of Truth where I am his Wrangler and his editor. Um, but we have knock on wood had like such an even keeled relationship and such a collaborative relationship where he is very open to feedback. I've worked with writers who aren't as successful as James, but take feedback really hard, Mm. um, or really defensively. Mm -hmm. And then in turn, James has given me fantastic feedback to punch up these stories. Um, so yes, that's who edits the editor, <laughs> the, the publisher. And I have to, you know, I have to give credit for um, Steve Orlando is a frequent collaborator of mine. We, we have several projects coming out that haven't been announced yet. Um, so he's always a great person to run something by too. I should, should give him a nod for
1: that. There's a variety of formats in each issue, uh, black and white sequential, color sequential, prose, interviews. uh, How have you and James come at balancing those forms in each issue?
2: You know, there are a lot of sayings about uh, creating a plan and then just not following it. (laughs) And that does mostly sum up what we've done. When we first planned out Razor Blades, we planned out a year of four issues. And we had a really rigid idea of each issue would have this many illustrations, this many eight-page stories, this many four-page stories, but once you get going and you have people who are pitching you these cool things that just don't fit in the confines you've built for it, Mm -hmm. it would be a disservice to the book and a disservice to ourselves to say, no, you have to make this story that really needs six pages fit into four. Or no, that doesn't really fit. Like Trevor Henderson, for instance, going forward, he's doing these two page spreads with one of his creeps, one of his monstrous creations, and then sort of like a file page. And it's not really comic. It's not really short story. It's its own thing. Um, But it would be a disservice to the spirit of the book if we stuck to the plan over rolling with the punches, because the punches are great. In this scenario, punches are a good thing. <laughs> and we just want to be punched all day long with all this cool horror <laughs> stuff that's coming our way. There. Yeah, so the biggest thing now is really just making sure we fit everything in, in the space that we can afford to print. Um, but we have some pretty ambitious ideas of how to make it
1: work. So we've already talked about taboo, which honestly, when I first saw the magazine solicited and when it arrived because i ordered the hard copy of issue one even before reading the introduction taboo was the first thing that popped into my head uh, but the horror anthology has a storied no pun intended history in comics whether it's the ec stuff you know tales from the crypt uh, dc's house of mystery or secrets or the Warren, your, your creepies and your eeries, uh, was that stuff that you had read and were familiar with before? Or is Taboo sort of your your horror go-to when it comes to comics anthologies?
2: Oh, it's certainly stuff that James and I had read and were familiar with and have great affection for, but it's nothing we wanted to mimic. Uh, with all due respect, and I, I truly mean that because those are just legendary anthologies that gave us so many talented creators and so many memorable stories we just didn't want to look back and so when we cite taboo as an influence it's not because we're trying to mimic taboo you know it's almost 30 years old at this point but we're trying to capture the same spirit for 2020 and we just you know we didn't want a crypt keeper you know we didn't want the sort of like fun nostalgic tone because i Think that's alive and well. Every couple of years you get a revival of something like that mm-hmm. and there's certainly a place for that but we wanted to do cutting-edge, modern-feeling, contemporary horror. So as much as I love Eerie and Creepy and all of those books, as much as I love Creepshow, um, it was very much not the guiding light for a project like this.
0: Um, after after two issues and, and you know working on the third, um, Do you feel like Bissett was uh, right about anthologies being a fool's errand?
2: (laughs) You know, to a certain extent, yeah. If you were to get into this to try to really make money or to try to like really profit or I don't even know how you want to phrase it. You know, we've been so lucky to have the response we've had, but we're also fully aware of the conditions under which we've had it. James is on fire right now we have the privilege of being able to recruit really popular talent and we have access to, you know, skilled designers and production people and uh, letterers and all of this. So we know that razor blades exists on a balancing beam. Um, And even for instance, like if, if conventions are going on right now, razor blades would be nearly impossible to pull off because James and a lot of the other creators involved would have this punishing travel schedule. So in a way, yeah, it's a fool's errand, but James and I are very happy fools to be doing this book and to have so many people be excited about this book. Uh,
0: you, you mentioned generational shift uh, earlier and, you know, people's sort of horror touchstones. Uh, so here's a horror question only 90s kids understand to... Uh, <laughs> mock buzzfeed which generation of rl stein are you fear street or goosebumps oh
2: i'm goosebumps yeah i mean i was born in 1989 so goosebumps was certainly around for my childhood i, I still have like bed sheets and different memorabilia like that mm-hmm. uh, i would kill to work on any of the goosebumps comics that the idw do uh or does so yeah i'm a, I'm a goosebumps kid i actually have no familiarity with fear street did that come later or earlier
0: no that was Familiar. that was earlier like late, okay. late 80s early 90s i think goosebumps started like mid 90s Gotcha. And yes. yeah it was it was paperbacks and you know, honestly, the covers had those like romance novel feel, but for like, but for like, you know, well, YA yeah. horror paperbacks.
2: Right. You know what I was the- weirdly into though was um, Christopher Pike, who did like the Last Vampire series. Yeah, so that's Frustrated. a Frustrated. really yeah that exactly. Far. I got really into that, and I still remember um, for to get like the fourth or fifth. I don't know how long they go volume i had to like contact the interlibrary loan department and get it shipped from like three libraries away and i went through all of that and it gets incredibly weird it's like aliens by the end of the series but middle school me was like
1: yeah fuck your vampires (laughs) well well researching you know you which Sounds weird and stalkery, <laughs> but you know we're interviewing you, so it's not sometimes
0: that. due diligence is creepy.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, on theme. If I uh, found your uh, a piece you wrote about your. Top 10 Stephen King novels Which jumped out Which jumped out at me as impressive Because you included what I consider A criminally underrated King Which is Lisey's story I knew you
2: were going to say Lisey's story
1: (laughs) As someone who granted I'm a couple behind Due to not having time But who's read all of King's oeuvre Uh, But we're here talking about anthologies And short pieces So I'm curious Favorite Stephen King shorts Are there a couple that you know always jump right into your mind when you think of his short fiction yeah i mean i guess i
2: think of night shift and skeleton crew and th- these books as like cohesive holes in a lot of way um gosh i'm trying to think if i had to pick favorite 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 um the ending story in skeleton crew is quite melancholy it's about a woman whose husband has passed away
1: oh uh, z- yeah i know the story you're trying yeah the
2: reach uh no let me see i mean we we all have access to computers right now but that one stands out to me um as a real favorite i mean night shift is still my favorite even though you go back and you look and it's quite Goofy stories. That's where the, the laundromat story is in yep. Night Shift. Um, the weird, like, goo beer story is in Night Shift. Um Matter. Qu- Quitter's Inc. is in Night Shift, right? No, one. Quitter's Inc. is Nightmares
1: and Dreamscapes. That one's a little. Oh, weird. Uh, the Boogeyman is in Night Shift, which is a favorite of mine. Gotcha.
2: Yeah, I wish I had the titles at hand because I could answer this question better, but I do really think of them as, as cohesive wholes. And overall, Skeleton Crew, I do think, is probably a little better than Night Shift. Um, but the early King is so exciting because you just see that like reckless passion. Um, and he, I grew up in an era when Stephen King was getting a lot of shit. You know, I, I grew up when he was getting mocked on um, The Simpsons for him like being in his agent's office and looking around like a haunted lamp, a haunted doorbell um, because he was post car accident and he was kind of <laughs> in an iffier era, but those early stories, he just goes for it. And I think that's what's inspiring about him. I I love every stage of King in different ways. Um, Oh, and what's the one at the lake? with the, the blot in the lake. That's a night nice shift. Uh,
1: yes, that's, I think, The Raft. The
2: Raft, that's great. I just watched Creepshow 2 uh, for Halloween, and they do a, a, you know, a decent enough adaptation of that. But The Raft is terrifying. That's still one of the scariest stories I think he wrote. Um, his, his short fiction is so great. There's a quote that always goes around about how in short stories you don't have to have a happy ending, and I think that's why his short stories really stand out versus some of his novels towards the latter half of his career where you see he he does get softer on his characters um and i think that it it, part of you as like a horror reader wants him to go that extra mile but part of you as a human being appreciates his empathy and his his um like innate kindness as a human being you know i know he's far from perfect and especially on twitter he's had his goofy moments but uh who hasn't (laughs) yeah he just comes across as such like an innately good human being so even in these more recent novels where it does turn a bit too kind by the end uh, you kind of get why he does it and can smile at it
1: uh, I, I was pleased at the end of the outsider where at least a couple of those characters just got shot i was like oh okay he, he's back to killing <laughs> off the characters at the end because those early novels it's like th- those last few chapters it's like wow there ain't nobody left. Yeah, I mean, the stand kills you every time. It's like you follow these characters, and then two thirds of them are just wow. wiped
2: out. Yeah, and even Night Surf, which is the what the original version yeah. of the Stand, it's a great short. Um, I always give Night Shift to people uh, who ask, like for their first King, um, because I think even if the hit miss ratio is not perfect for you, it really is this perfect sampler platter of the the writer to come i once
1: saw a play it was it was four or six short adaptations of stories from night shift Oh, that's and, great! yeah and my girlfriend at the time and i got sat at one of the tables at the front of the stage with a plant who was the the narrator of uh strawberry spring the story about the guy who's The serial killer, but doesn't realize it. And at the end, he turns and he looks at my girlfriend at the time, and he's like, he reads those last lines, which I'll never forget. And my wife was she was angry because she thinks I was with another woman. And now so do I. And he's staring right at my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: a great one too. That's, that's a really understated one for him. Yeah. Uh, and that one, I, I know it's based on real events, I think in in Maine or New Hampshire, but my mom was in college in Michigan around the same time that there was a, a killer of young women in, uh, in our hometown. So that one always kind of struck a chord with me too.
1: Before
0: uh, we move on from horror chat, we should also mention uh, you've got a short out I, I think now, by the time this airs next week, uh, through TKO called uh, Night Train uh, with uh, Lisandro uh was this something that you had cooked up possibly for Razor bra- Blades, and then you know TKO put out a call for you know some short fiction, or or you know what was the the sort of genesis of this one?
2: No, this was in progress before razor blades. It's really funny that it ended up getting announced right as razor blades two came out because it is, you know, it's something that would very much be at home in the pages of Razorblades. blades. Um, that came about still indirectly because of James because um, when I was it, about 10 years ago, I was an intern at Marvel comics. And Sebastian Gerner was an editor there at the time. He's now at TKO. And Sebastian's also a freelance editor for a number of image books. Mm -hmm. So when James reached out to me about potentially editing Department of Truth, I reached out to Sebastian for advice on um, rates and sort of the process and working with image and all of that. And Sebastian, we didn't know each other that well at Marvel, but Mm -hmm. he was so warm and welcoming and he scheduled a call and he walked me through all this stuff. And we started talking about TKO and I made some sort of joke about like, I'm not trying to like backdoor pitch you or anything. And he was like, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah, you you know, you can pitch me if you want. We're doing this program, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it got started. That was actually a little bit before New York Comic-Con last year, mm-hmm. because then at Comic-Con uh, and I live in Queens, so it's kind of my backdoor show. Um, I was able to meet with him and Z and talk more about it. And just a week or two after Comic-Con, we got the ball rolling on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kicked off the shorts program. They're doing three to start, Sebastian wrote one, uh, Liana Kangas wrote another mm-hmm. with Paul has a set on art. Um, so they're really fun sort of testing grounds for shorter stories. And what I like most about them is there was no edict for it to be pitch for anything longer like they are meant to be short stories that stand alone Mm -hmm. to kind of complement tko's line um and you just don't get that opportunity that much with other publishers to tell sort of short standalone stories that don't have to be like a high concept elevator Mm -hmm. pitch um and sebastian was a great really hands-on editor working with lissandro and um, patricio delpci uh, and steve wands was a dream for something so short we got a long time to really refine it into the best version of itself possible. And I'm very proud of it. It's actually one of my favorite things I've written because my, my approach to it was write the Vertigo anthology story that you never got to write. Mm. Um, You know, I'm 30, but my guiding light for comics is kind of like the 1990 to 1995, like pre Vertigo to Vertigo era. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I have read, all the ephemera they ever published. You know, a lot of people, it's Swamp Thing, Animal Man, Doom Patrol. Yeah. I, Vertigo Visions, like <laughs> all the weird shit. I've tracked down all the one shots. I've tracked down all the miniseries that no one talks about anymore. Um, and that's kind of the most exciting era of comics to me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was me channeling that kind of story. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
1: I love. I love those... The strange adventures and Crime and Punishment anthologies, yeah. and some of those weird, uh, the uh, the little known but something I love the uh, Brubaker Sean Hour Prez one shot. Yeah,
2: uh, the Prez one shot. Uh, Rachel Pollock did a couple one shots. Just some great lost gems, and, and Comicsology is really a dream for that because DC just steadily put all their old weird Vertigo shit up there. Um, so next time there's, like, a, a big comicsology DC sale, flock to that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you know, now, on top of all this, uh, you know, it, it, it rains it pours your editing Department of Truth, uh, you know, J- uh, James's book at Image with uh, Martin Simmons.
2: Um, and
0: that's that's proven to be a pretty big hit.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been lucky to have a great reception. We're one of the, the top like five or six image launches of the past decade. Uh, of course, Crossover came out like right after and was like, <laughs> boom. Um, but you, for the kind of book we are, which is again, kind of that old Vertigo feel, uh, we couldn't have asked for a better reception. Uh, and Martin Simmons is doing the work of his career. Aditya Bidikar is littering the hell out of it. Uh, Dylan Todd was our designer on that as well, and just killed it with some very non-traditional cover uh, logo and design placement. And we've had such a wealth of guest artists on covers, and then we have some guest issues coming up. I don't think the second one has been announced yet, so I don't want to spoil who that is, but Elsa Chaterier who is doing November um, with Matt Fraction. She's our guest artist for issue six. Um, And we have guest artists lined up down the line that are really impressive too. So it's been great. One thing I said a lot um, earlier on in the process is that I wish the world would make the book less relevant. (laughs) Because a lot of it has to do with conspiracy theories. And when we started doing the book, QAnon was a troubling presence. And by the time the second issue came out, QAnon was getting people elected to Congress. Yeah. So it's been kind of a, a frightening uh, thing to see change in the past year. But Aditya actually uh, tweeted something today where well, the best, one of the best lettering edits he's ever had to make was changing Donald Trump is to Donald Trump was <laughs> <laughs> for an upcoming script. Uh, so, you know, knock on wood, some of the more troubling parts of Department of Truth will become less relevant and more fictional as we go along.
0: Certainly. You know, it's funny, a couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion with a couple of guests uh, and we were talking about conspiracy theories and I just, I kind of got on my Andy Rooney horse and I'm like, man, remember what conspiracy theories were these fun harmless things about like aliens and, and, and shit.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really has been this kind of chilling uh, shift in their relevancy with social media and with obviously, you know, people in, high positions of power unfortunately amplifying some uh there's a great book by an author named colin dickey um i I think it's called the unexplained or the unexplored it's the un something yeah but the author's name is colin dickey and it is very fascinating though because even a lot of those harmless conspiracy theories if you do some digging they pretty much all have roots in like xenophobia and racism Mm. even ones you would never expect to like sasquatch or, or um how, abductions by aliens. Uh, so that was an eye-opening and entertaining read. Um, and we've had to walk kind of a fine line with some of our conspiracies where we have to make sure we don't sound like we're advocating for any of these.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because with with fiction, I think in the current conversation, there are some readers who struggle with the idea that just because a character says something does not mean the author is advocating for that. Yeah. Um, and it, it can be challenging to to hit that mark sometimes and with a book like this every issue is is really like you know aiming at that bullseye from 100 meters or farther i don't arch you know i'm not an archer so maybe that's easy i don't know
1: well we don't want them to start you know believing that you believe in it because then they might believe it yeah it exactly Psh,
2: mind blown <laughs> uh
1: M- moving on out of that and into the somewhat lighter <laughs> fare, um, uh, you released uh, an uh, cheat, uh, cheater code, uh, an erotic graphic novel through Oni, uh, with art by Daz. And what jumped out at me when I first started going through it is that this isn't the art that immediately comes to mind when you think erotic graphic novel. It's not that straight-out porn that you get from Housewives at Play or (laughs) that lush European Milo Manara stuff. It's not the only time I own a copy of Colleen Coover's Small Favors, Mm. which is, you know, it's still Colleen Coover's normal sort of cute style and it's, you know, hardcore erotic comics. Um, (laughs) Was this a book where you had the the concept and you went out looking for an artist who sort of fit a style in your head? Or was Daz when you wanted to work with and this was the right project for the two of you to work on together?
2: I'm really excited to finally get to talk about Cheater Code because it, it, it is something that I started writing in 2016. Uh, Oni has a very patient process, uh, is how I'd phrase it. And this book, when I first got it picked up I was very nervous because I did not have many published credits at the time and I was looking down the barrel at a scenario where an erotica was going to kind of define who I was and that made me nervous as someone who wants to continue doing children's stuff who wants to work in mainstream comics so I'm quite lucky that by the time it comes out I'll have done so many other things that it's not quite this like overbearing presence in my bibliography but how it came about actually was um teeny howard who is the writer of excalibur she's a good friend of mine she was working with ari yarwood on the rick and morty comics Mm -hmm. at oni press at the same time that that ari was launching limerence press which Mm -hmm. is an imprint specifically for inclusive erotica and sex education novels so a lot of what they've done has been like the easy guide to they them pronouns the easy guide to consent Uh, Those books are fantastic. And they've also reprinted things like Oh Joy Sex Toy. um, And they've done erotica with a number of other comic creators. And they have some fun titles coming up. So one thing they were not getting a lot of were pitches from queer men. Uh, They were getting pitches about queer men, but not created by queer men. And it's a touchy, we could talk for an hour just about that. But I do think it's important to have that authenticity at times um, some of the best erotic content about men has been created by creators who don't identify as men but i think there's a place in the market for creators who do and i bring their own life experiences not that it's autobiographical uh, but are bringing you know some of their own life experiences you know there there are scenes about douching there's comments about um, prep so things that you wouldn't necessarily think to include an erotic graphic novel, especially if men having sex with men is not your lived experience. <clears throat> but it came about by Teeny connecting me with Ari, pitching Ari a couple ideas. And uh, Daryl, so the artist's name is Daryl Toe. We all published it under pen names that we're being completely open about. And it's really just about separating it on Amazon, separating it on other platforms so that if someone clicks on my Pokemon ABC book, <laughs> and clicks my name they don't buy this colorful looking graphic novel for a little timmy um so we each did these these pin names but if you look on the bio of the book it says our real names so daryl toe is a malaysian artist and he had done a guest strip for oh joy sex toy and when i wrote the book um overwatch was fairly new and mm. i just had that sort of level of cartooned abstraction in mind i knew i didn't want Milo Minara, like you say, um, I knew I didn't want someone who couldn't nail the sexy part at all. I really wanted this kind of sweet spot where each of the video game worlds we go to would feel like a video game, but still feel like something the character is experiencing. Because it's quite hard to show in, in a printed page that you're in a fictional world on top of that. Um, so Daryl's art style was kind of the sweet spot and we got very lucky that he was interested and he had time in his schedule and he was into the project. It was very uh, intimidating to write, to script out sex scenes, to send to first my, my queer female editor in Portland, to then send to the, a man I've never met in Malaysia, uh, where I am describing two people having sex. Or more than two people having sex, or people who aren't people having sex. Um, so it was a very unusual project to get started, but luckily all three of us were on exactly the same page.
1: But um, now on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you've written a. You mentioned before, you've written a ton of uh, younger readers' books. Step into reading books including a new uh, upcoming one uh, a batman one called copycat that the cover when i was going through previews recently jumped right out at me because i'm a gigantic batman nerd like huge batman nerd um but w- you one would think without thinking too much about it that those type of young readers books are simple and something you can dash off, but I'd have to imagine they require stretching a bunch of different muscles than either the horror stuff you're writing or the stuff like cheater code.
2: Yeah. They, they can be quite complicated. Um, So like I mentioned earlier, I was an editor at random house for five years and I worked in the children's division and that's kind of how I got started on the, licensed kids path. A lot of the names you see on licensed children's books are people who work in publishing houses, and they just work in other departments, and they get hired to do these things. So I got my start because a a friend of mine named John Sazaklis, who's done a number of Super Pets books and other things, um, he had a new baby, and he needed someone to help him write. He just simply didn't have the time. And that was not long after I won the Top Cow Talent Hunt. So I kind of pivoted from Witchblade to doing Transformers kids books. Um, but it it just kept going because honestly, they're nice pay. The editors are easy to work with, but they can be complicated because you're working with different licensors. So, you know, I remember on one of the first Transformers books, I got a notebook, a note back that Optimus Prime couldn't sit. Like I couldn't have Optimus Prime sit down. Hmm. You just can't do it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You cannot show the leader of the Autobots sitting like a human being would sit. Um, or for instance, I've done a lot of Nintendo books. And Nintendo is very particular about having no narrative content. So you can write about a Pokemon based on their description in the Pokedex. But you can't say Pikachu walks across the room and grabs a Pokeball. Like You can't have them doing anything. Hmm. You can't have dialogue for Mario that Mario doesn't say in the game already. So you end up walking this fine line with licensors. <clears throat> and even recently I, I did a project. Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say <laughs> who it was for, but I did a, a, a book that you would think would be a very simple children's book um, for a very popular license. And nailing it was just so much back and forth where the licensor would say, well, you know, whatever it is, we don't want X. So you would do Y. And then they would say, but what about X? How about we try X? Um, And it just went on like that. And it was even more amusing because at the same time I was writing um, a graphic novel that I'm very excited about that hasn't been announced yet, but that is also with a very big licensed character. So I wrote in the time that I was going back and forth on this 20 page kids book with maybe 40 lines of text total. I wrote and got approved a 60 page children's graphic novel for a similarly popular character. So it it is complicated, it's fun. I like doing them because they don't require the same uh, muscles as you say that razor blades or some of my other adult projects require, Mm -hmm. Um, but it it can still really be threading a needle with all these different licensors.
0: It's like magic. There are a lot of rules and you have to be very specific.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. I like how that, that applies either to systems of magic or the card game. <laughs> Both Still true. Either way, you cut it. Yes,
0: absolutely. Uh, so I am going to uh, resurrect a segment that had occurred to me in, in putting our notes together for the show that we have not done in, in quite some time. Uh, Steve, I want to know about your dog.
2: Oh, my dog's name is Cora, um, but my boyfriend named her. Uh, I had never seen Legend of Cora until this summer, uh, but I I did like it, thankfully. Um, And she is a mutt. Um, I I would call her over here, but she probably uh, would just bark at me. Um, But she is, we think she's a chihuahua mixed. I think that's maybe wishful thinking because I really love chihuahuas. She might be like a miniature pincher, um, but she's this beautiful little brown mutt. Um, she's very sweet she loves bandanas and sweaters she'll like kind of raise her arms up to make sure you can wear them and she's very much an inside dog Uh, she's pad trained so she doesn't have to go outside Mm -hmm. because she had like a small bladder when she was first rescued Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and now she just doesn't like going outside (laughs) so she's my little diva uh, and I work from home I've been full-time freelance for three years so we're you know we're best buds while uh, my boyfriend is at work and she sleeps between my legs every night. <laughs> I'm actually a big cat person. Like I, my whole life I was a big cat person and my left arm is all cat tattoos. Oh. Um, but thankfully, Cora does pretty much act like a cat. So it's, it's an easy transition. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, my, my, my older dog, I have too many intro and the older one has, oh. has catish tendencies.
2: Doxins <laughs> are full of like spit and vinegar from what I hear.
0: Uh, yeah. Our older one definitely is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Especially l- at night she's, and, 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 you know, I say, Oh, I mean, she's 11 years old now. So she does classify oh. it as older, but you know, she always has, and it's, it, it hasn't been the same one all her life. It's, it's, you know, they quick turnaround, but she always has one toy that's like her totem. So <laughs> after the sun goes down, she has that toy right now. It's a, it's a taco and you know she has to squeak it a, a certain number of times before she finally lies down and goes to bed and if you try to touch it or give the appearance that you're going for it when really you just want her to give her some you know gentle nuzzles on your on your hand she will she will snap at you
2: <laughs> Aww. yeah thankfully core is like the most placid dog when it comes to us like we can pretend to eat her food right out of her bowl we can steal her <laughs> treats you know she'll like give us a little grumble but she's not a snipper at least <laughs>
0: oh man i I think i saw a picture of you know going through reachers for the show of her in a uh, in a christmas sweater and i was just like oh yes yes, that is the best (laughs) with like the butt flap like this you know the two snaps over the it's great oh yeah
2: i mean when you have when you're a dog with gay dads like you're gonna end up with clothes (laughs) it's just it's definitely gonna happen
0: uh, it, it It is very good uh, dog content. Yeah, no, we used to, you know, we used to make a habit of like asking guests, guests uh, especially guests with dogs and cats uh, about their pets. And I think it's a thing that stopped happening right around the pan, like when the pandemic started. And I don't know if it was like a subconscious thing or we just didn't have any guests with, that didn't have pets for a while. I don't think that's true, Aww. but I, I, maybe there was a party and I was like, well, I can't pet them now. So what's the point? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah i have so one of my aftershock books that's coming up is very dog focused and it's co-written with steve orlando and we've tweeted some art from it but it hasn't been announced yet mm-hmm. um but it it's a tearjerker at times um and but it's for younger readers and uh mm-hmm. it's starring corgis which steve has a corgi so he uh-huh. was tapping into his own uh own dog history there so now whenever i see corgis it almost just kind of feels like cosplayers of our book
0: yeah no there's there's a lot of corgis in 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 the comics uh biz that i have uh seen i think leona kangas has a has a corgi or two
2: possibly oh i'm doing a stream with her soon so i'll ask her to put the dog on
0: (laughs) (laughs) um yeah Yeah, so as we're uh winding what, what are you reading right now
2: oh geez um i just got the PDFs for homesick pilots. I love Dan Waters and Casper uh, Windjard. Sorry, Casper, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Um, And I haven't actually read them yet, but I am such a fan of everything both of them do. So I know I'm going to love those. I'm also engaged in like a long term, I was hoping you'd ask about X-Men, but obviously you know, I'm not working on X-Men, so why would you? But I'm engaged in a long term um, X-Men reread. Oh, okay. um, Where I'm reading everything sequentially. From giant size number one, so sometimes I you know I go a few weeks without having the time to get back to it. But I'm in the beginning of the Jim Lee era right now, <clears throat> um, which has been fun because I was not around <laughs> when that first happened. Um, sure because people forget, you know, Jim was on the book in the late eighties before X-Men number one, but people kind of forget about that. Um, so that's, that's a lot of fun. That's kind of my comfort food when I want to go back to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also doing a sequential reread of Hellblazer mm. uh, every single issue. And the new Hellblazer is fantastic. Um, I don't know. They're t- when you are kind of um, elbow deep in making monthly comics you can easily fall into a trap of not having a time to read monthly comics sure. and end up w- what, a lot of my friends do. We read the PDFs that our friends send us and we get excited about, you know, the one or two issues. And then we're so busy reading other PDFs that friends send us yeah. that it takes us forever <laughs> to go back and like read the whole fucking story. <laughs> uh, so, oh, sea of sorrows. That's coming up by um, yep. Rich. Rich yep. Duick and um, right. Alex Cormack, yeah. Yep. So that was uh, great. I read the first yeah. issue of that. Going to try to keep up guests. with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's great. You will you, see them in Razor Blades. Spoiler alert. Um, so usually PDFs that friends send me. Well,
0: well, yeah. listen, Hope Pilots a, we just a, read and, a, and it is fucking amazing. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I know yeah. I'm going to love it. Like every single thing about that feels tailor made. It's not, I can't lie and say it's an idea where you see it and you wish you had thought of it first. Cause I just never would have thought of this <laughs> particular mashup, but it is like, Hey, make a book for Steve Fox. <laughs> like, uh, and you may see uh, people involved with homesick pilots end up in razor blades too. Nice. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, I've been doing a, um, a sort of a Barker reread, Clyde Barker, um, before Halloween. Uh, I try I try to make more time for prose, it comes and goes, but uh, I was reading Books of Blood, four through six, which were released in America under individual titles, um, but rereading those and that's where Candyman originated. Um, as the forbidden. <clears throat> so that was my first time actually reading the story it was based on. Uh, and one of the, the instances, Barker for as great as he is, he does have these instances where the movies improve on the stories. I think Hell, Hellraiser certainly qualifies and Candyman definitely qualifies.
0: We just had uh, talking about rereading X Men. Uh, we had a friend on a few weeks ago, Corey McCreary. At the beginning of the year, she started reading X Men from like 1963, number one, like all the way through Hoxpox. I think she Jeez. just finished a couple of weeks ago, but she was hitting like 15 books a day.
2: <laughs> that is why, yeah, I mean, I skipped the entire pre Giant Size era. I was like, I don't have time for this. I read Green <laughs> Design, that was enough for me um but, but speak of hox yeah i mean i make a point to keep up with everything x-men mm-hmm. i make a point to keep up with immortal hulk um i make a point to keep up with james's batman run so there mm-hmm. are books that you know every week i manage to like get the time in but i do a lot of binging like four or five issues will pile up and then i'll plow through it mm-hmm. uh i'm, I'm not an intrinsically huge venom guy uh you know donnie's great but i've been reading venom because you know that's gonna <laughs> Consume the entire Marvel line soon. Covered in black goo, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been catching up on that. Um, But I I do end up binging a lot, where I just kind of sit down and read like five to 15 issues at a time or something. Oh, uh, Blue and Green, by Ram mm, yeah. and, and um, everyone else I just read that recently. So it's great stuff. It ends up feeling so scattershot because I'm jumping between like the stuff I'm working on and and stuff friends send, but mm-hmm. there's no shortage of amazing things to read right now. I, I wish when you're a freelancer, you don't really have vacations, <laughs> um, <laughs> but my ideal vacation would just be like sitting down and reading everything that's backlogged on my iPad.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Uh, no. Way too much good shit out there. Again, good problem to have. But uh, Steve, this has been uh, great. Uh, how can people follow you online uh, and and keep abreast of everything going on with uh, razor blades and everything else?
2: Yeah, I'm Steve underscore Fox, F-O-X-E, at, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Instagram's mostly going to be dog photos, but Twitter will update on my work. And then you can follow. Read Razorblades on Instagram or Twitter for updates on everything razor blades. And awesome, our next Steve. issue will be out in January, but you can get the digital issues of one and two anytime you like at readrazorblades.com for whatever price you'd like to pay.
0: All right, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQA and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files Media Empire meaning you can find all our great comics coverage along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around at xavierfiles.com. You can listen to wmq a on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at xavierfiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support wmq a at patreon.com slash wmqcomics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lasowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from The Young Ones Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M. from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote, and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other.
1: W Q.A.